Thank you for tuning in to Tuolumne Community Baptist Church. Pastor George here. It's Sunday morning again. My goodness, how fast that comes around. We are here. It's a nice, cool Sunday morning. We can feel fall in the air. I'm so glad that you're tuning in. Today, we're starting a new book study. We're just moving down a couple little books from where we were in Hosea, and we're going to go to the book of Jonah. And I believe the reason the Lord led me to the book of Jonah is not that we're going to try to cover all the minor prophets of the Old Testament, although that's not a bad idea. But I think it's, you know, the timeline. We were just talking about the Assyrian people and their impact on Israel and, and Judah. Um, and it, this is all in the same timeline of when Jonah was dealing with them. So we're going to look at the book of Jonah. We're going to look at this very interesting character, this prophet of God, and try to understand why he ran. And maybe we'll see why we run. Sometimes we just run from God. We don't want any part of what he's asking us to do. We're going to look at that very carefully over the next couple of weeks. I hope you enjoy. I'm sure that you will. Go get your Bibles, get your pencils out, and follow along. God bless you. We'll get started in just a minute. Well, today we have a whale of a tail. Anybody know where we're going? Amen. When I felt the Lord leading me to to this story. It's actually a book of the Bible. It's a short story. I, I didn't, I thought, Lord, really you want, you want to go back to Jonah? We've been here before. It's been a long time. But I believe one of the reasons why um, is because of the timeline in which we were just in with Hosea. We just got introduced to the Assyrian nation, Assyrian nation in Hosea. And we're going to talk about who they were and what Jonah's problem was with doing what God had asked him to do. Sometimes we can read through this little story. It's only four verses. I mean, four chapters, like 48 verses total. I mean, you could read it in just a few minutes. And we'll kind of shake our heads and go, huh, I wonder what that was all about. Well, we're going to try to dig into it a little deeper today. I'm reading a book called The Book of Jonah by Rabbi Dr. Shimli Yankloevich. Yankloevich. I probably mutilated his name. He's a Jewish brother, believes in Christ as a savior. And he brought up some really good questions and thoughts, and I'll do my best to let you know when I'm quoting him. Um, you know, I want you to know because I don't want you to think that I'm that smart, okay? Because he, he has some really incredible quotes. And Jonah is a perplexing figure who flees from God's plan for a better world, but not because, go to the next slide not because he fears God's justice, 
but because he resents God's mercy. That's an interesting statement. You have to really think about that. He doesn't fear God's justice. He knows that God is a just God. But he resents the mercy that God wants to show to some people. And we're going to talk about that. Despite moments of soul searching, one in the dark recesses of this great fish and one by the side of a withered plant, Jonah remains an enigma. Does he ever reconcile himself to God's love for his creation or does he continue to value truth and strict justice over compassion and mercy? We're going to try to answer that question for ourselves and in ourselves. See, what we need to realize, it's, it's not necessarily about Jonah. This is about you. We've all had people in our lives that have hurt us. People in our lives that we just don't like. It's okay to say that. You, you were human beings. Have you ever met somebody and, and just immediately, it's just something in your spirit just checks you and goes, I don't like that guy. I have. I'll be honest. Y'all want to sit there and act all holy on me. I'll be honest. I have. And other pastor friends of mine. And later to find out that this is the most phenomenal man I think I've ever met. Once I give him a chance to realize who he is. What were you going to say, Tony? Amen. Amen. That's the way I felt about my brother Nathan when I first met him. Uh, that's Jim's surrogate pastor. <laughs> you know, he's, he's an awesome guy. He's an awesome guy, but when I first met him, I thought, I don't like this guy. Nope, not going to have nothing to do with him. It's just who we are as people. And I don't know why sometimes we do that, but we do. I hope you realize that there are people in this world that believe this story to be a fable, a children's story. One that makes us think and to realize the love of God has for the human race but please, let us not make this mistake. This story is real. When I say people, I'm meaning New Testament professors like Craig Bloomberg, I'm going to mention names, of Denver Seminary and others. Well, that sounds a bit puzzling. Well, it should be. And I'm glad that it's puzzling to you. First, let's consider fiction versus history. We all know the Bible has parable in it, parables in it. Can I get an amen? amen? We know that. Jesus has told that. While we might think a parable as inspired fiction, that is essentially what they are. They're non-historical stories that convey an important lesson for us that were mostly taught by Jesus himself. Some of the things which Bloomberg considers to be fictional stories in Scripture might shock you as coming from someone teaching from a fairly conservative seminary. According to Bloomberg, Jonah was probably a real prophet, but the book of Jonah is a parable, so he writes. Jonah has never, was never swallowed by a fish. He never went to Nineveh. 
The whole account was just an inspired story, inspired short story. He favorably recites Old Testament professor James Bruckner of North Park Theological Seminary, who says that Jonah is a unique parable about a real prophet. These are guys that are teaching our young people about the Bible. We rely on the Bible to interpret the Bible, to interpret the Bible. Can I get an amen? amen? It will answer all of our questions if you search and seek it through the living word of God. You will find the answers. Let's see what Jesus thought about the story of Jonah. I want you to turn to Matthew 12, 38. And interesting, you know, I say turn to as if you guys are all holding your Bible. I, I hope that you, some of you are. I put it all on the screen so that, you know, you don't have to quickly rustle through to get to a place, but I really like it when I see that you are opening your Bibles. We will be back to the book of Jonah in just a minute. Matthew 12, 38 through 41. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. You know, in my opinion, just my personal being, that was a reasonable question. We want to see something. Show us that you are this, truly the Son of God, or whoever it is you say you are. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. It's already happened. You guys can read about it. You just need to believe it. He said in verse 44, As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nebaneth will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Jesus said a greater one than Jonah is here. And these people, these, these really evil people of the town of Nineveh, they would condemn you for not believing the story because they saw the truth and they repented. If you're not able to swallow the story of, Genesis, of, of <clears throat> Jonah, you're gonna struggle a little bit because you have to be able to swallow this. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You gotta accept it. It's by faith, but you have to accept that it's real and it's true. And so is the story of Jonah. So can a man really survive in the belly of a fish? Have you ever thought about that? It's interesting because it has happened. I'll show you several accounts actually in history. In February of 1891, the ship the Star of the East was off the Falkland Islands when a crew spotted an 80-foot sperm whale. Two rowboats filled with crewmen were launched to capture the monster. Closing in, a harpooner let his weapon let his weapon go and shafted the whale, which lashed out, almost overturning the boats. Returning to the ship with their dead whale, the crewmen realized that James Bartley was missing. It was decided he had been tossed overboard in the fight and that he had drowned. 
Six hours later, the crewmen began removing the blubber from this dead beast, but by midnight, the tax was still going on and unfinished, so the sailors went to bed. In the morning, they resumed their job. Then the unexpected happened. According to M.D. Parville, editor of the journal D. Debates, writing in Paris in 1914, said, suddenly the sailors were startled by something in the stomach which gave a spasmatic signs of life. Inside, they found the missing sailor, James Bartley. Doubled up and unconscious in a fetal position, he was placed on the deck and treated with a bath of salt water, which soon revived him, but his mind was not clear actually for about two weeks. It took to clear his mind and he was placed in the captain's quarters. Recovering, Bartley recalled being hit by the whale's tail and that he had been in, encompassed by great darkness and he felt he was slipping along a smooth passage that seemed to move and carry him forward. He could easily breathe, but the heat was terrible. It seemed to open the pores of his skin and draw, draw out his vitality. The next thing he remembered was being in the captain's cabin. Except for the fact that his face, neck, hands, and hair had been bleached white, Bartley, like, Bartley, like Jonah, survived the belly of a monster. Sperm whales have been cut open to reveal entire sharks, squid that have been swallowed whole, as well as floatsome. Their jaws were not designed for chewing, thus they're adapt to swallowing whole prey. So it's certainly possible that they could swallow an entire human, as in the Samaritan article points out. Whalers butchering the sperm whale. Typically, some washed up sperm whales have been found, tragically I should say, some sperm whales have been uh, found, their stomachs literally full of garbage, such as a 14 foot meter long specimen discovered in 2019 with a 100 kilometer, 200 pound ball of rope, netting, plastic and tubing in its stomach. At least, it at least illustrates Jonah 2.5, the weeds that were wrapped around Jonah's head, which were within the belly of the fish. Sperm whales can consume around a ton of food per day, making 180 pound men a side dish. I mean, it can happen. As long as the individual made it safely past the teeth, it could possibly be sucked down the gullet of a large sperm whale and contained within its stomach. It goes without saying, it would be the most unimaginable, terrifying, disgusting, and uncomfortable experience. Like Jonah said, my, fault, my soul fainted within me. It had to be absolutely terrifying. Another tidbit in Jonah 2 could fit with sperm whales because verse 6 says that Jonah went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The sperm whales are known as the deepest diving large whales of the whale kingdom. They can spend time hanging around continental shells, hunting for giant squid and can dive down more than 10,000 feet, holding their breath for around two hours. That's just phenomenal. I had no idea. 
I wonder what the pressure's like inside of the belly if they went down that deep. Finally, at the end of Jonah's account, the creature is described as having vomited Jonah out on dry land. We see that in verse 10. This is another tidbit. Whales can and do vomit. As it turns out, the sperm whale is known for its vomit. Sperm whales are unique in producing what is known as ambergris, a millable yet solid substance formed in the bile duct. Historically, it's harvested and used for, guess what? Cosmetic and perfumes. <laughs> I just thought that was hilarious. Um, it can be harvested and sought from the bodies of the whales that, they have, that they've harpooned, but it can also be found discharged and floating on the ocean surface. But with age, it takes on a sweeter smell, so they say. It is still unknown what purpose this substance serves, but given that some giant squid's beaks have been found contained within the ambergris, it likely has something to do with uh, passing incredibly tough objects. Did anybody knew, know that squids had beaks? No. Did you say yes? Okay, uh, no. Squid has a beak? Okay, it's, I mean, just because it's in a computer, it means it's a truth, right? <laughs> okay, pastor, that's enough about the big fish. How about these Assyrians? Okay, let's talk about them. But let's start with Nevenath first, the oldest and most populous city in the ancient Assyrian Empire, situated on the east bank of the Targus River and encycled by the modern-day city of Mosul in Iraq. Interesting thing, and I didn't realize this until I really started studying it. I assumed that Nebuchadnezzar would be a port city. Doesn't that make sense? He pukes up old Jonah, and he walks over to Nineveh. It's 600 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. It's well inland. You can see it on the picture. I did circle up. You can see the Mediterranean Sea, down below, and where that circle is, is where Nemeneth is, which is in Iraq today. So it's an interesting thing. I, I've searched and searched to find out how long it actually took Jonah to get from the Mediterranean Sea to Nemeneth. Now, the Bible tells us that Nemeneth was a three-day journey around the city, which tells us pretty much it's a pretty good-sized city, but it probably took him near a month to get from the Mediterranean Sea to Nemeneth. And the Bible doesn't record that for us. That's, I just thought that was an interesting tidbit. Jonah's name in Hebrew is Jonah, which means dove. As a prophet in the Hebrew Bible, Israel, he is in Israel around the 8th century B.C. However, rather than Jonah, as direct Jonah to prophecy to his own people, I'm sure that he would have preferred that, God commission him to the Assyrian capital of Nineveh. At first, unwilling to make the journey northeast to deliver God's message, Jonah turned and he aimed for the furthest westward known um, to him, which is Tarshish, located today in Spain. There's another picture of a map. Is that the next one? Or am I getting, I might be getting ahead of it. Okay. 
So where the red is, is where Joppa is. That's where he got onto the boat. And somewhere out in the Mediterranean Sea there is where this great storm happened. He never did make it down to uh, Tarshish, which is where he was heading, which is down on the tip of Spain. It was a very commercial area, uh, big money, a lot of things happening in Tarshish. Uh, they were known for their uh, metal work and that type of thing. <clears throat> but that's where he was headed, and it was the furthest known to, to man at the time that he could get away from God. After God eventually turned Jonah back into the right direction, the prophet obediently prophesied to the people of Nineveh, <clears throat> well, Asuradan III, he sat on the throne in Assyria. That was from 772 to 754 B.C. Though Assyria had been in a politically weakened state for some time, by the time Jonah, their, they were cruelty to their captives and to their undesirables. Weren't we called undesirables? Oh, never mind, that's another subject. Undesirables was well known in Israel, creating an obvious need for Jonah's message to repentance. Assyria's conquest of the northern kingdom of Israel, approximately 740 BC with King Pul, you can find that in 1 Chronicles 5-6, this coincides with Jonah's ministry, which went from 740 to 720 BC. Okay, I want us to look at Chronicles 5-6. 526. So God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pool, king of Assyria, that is, I guess he had another name, Telgath Pilsner, king of Assyria. He carried the Reubenites, the Gideonites, and the half the tribe of Manasseh into captivity. These are all Hebrew tribes that he was capturing and encompassing and taking them as as slaves, taking them as well as killing them. He was taking the, the strong, healthy ones. He took them to Heleth, Habar, Hera, and the river of Gozan to this day. These Hebrew tribes located east of the Jordan River were the first ones conquered by Assyria. Nearly 20 years after B.C. 20, 22, 722 B.C., the capital city of Samaria was overtaken by the Assyrians under Shalmiser. We just heard about him going through the book of Hosea. He was the final king. After forcing tribute payments, Shalmiser later laid siege to the city when it refused to pay. Following a three-year siege, we can find this in 2 Kings 7 5 through 6. We're going to look at that. 2 Kings 17. Now the king of Assyria went through all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea, that's not Hosea, but Hoshea, king of Assyria, took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and by the harbor of the river Gozan and the cities of Medes. Wow, there's a lot going on in this whole time of Jonah that he is in, in the present day of his life. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Syria captured Samaria 
In 701 BC, the Assyrians marched south into Judah. However, they were unable to capture Jerusalem to, due to the Lord's intervention. And you can see that in 2 Chronicles 13, 32, when you want to study that for yourself. What an amazing thing. Do you guys remember the prophecy that Judah was in trouble too with God, but God said he was going to be kind to Judah because they still had a remnant of people that were serving God in Judah, where Israel had completely gone off the rails, you know, serving these gods of gold and doing hideous things to their kids, doing all these things. Judah was still trying to hold on. So God helped and intervened Judah. The Lord had long waited, warned Israel of judgment, going all the way back to Moses. Stern warning in Deuteronomy 28, 62 through 65. You guys want to, you know, curl your hair a bit? Read Deuteronomy 28. Amazing things. What happens when you do not adhere to what the Lord is saying? Second uh, Kings 17, 13 says, Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer. They were being told many attempts had been made to turn the people back to the Lord, including the efforts of Elijah and Elisha, two of the greatest prophets in Israel's history. The Assyrians created an enormous empire. They mastered the art of war. Unfortunately for their armies, Assyrians mastered also torture techniques, and they bragged about it. It was actually the Assyrians who eventually designed the cross, who eventually the Romans took their idea to crucify Christ, our Lord, on that cross. Prior to that, they would take stakes in the ground and they would hang men on their bodies on the point of the stake. So each time they moved, it would go deeper into their body and it would torture us, torture us death. Then they found out that the cross was even better because they would live longer. They could torture for longer. Why would anybody do that sort of thing? Well, control. They were trying to gain control of their enemies, of the people they were conquering. And the only way we can do that is to be absolute, completely brutal, hideously brutal. The things they carried out, they cut off limbs. They gouged out eyes and left those poor victims to roam around. These poor people serve as a living reminder of the Assyrians' cruelty. The cruelty didn't hurt only the enemies. The Assyrian soldiers suffered too. Can you guys even imagine, especially my military guys, can you imagine how these guys felt? Killing and torturing people that they knew they didn't have to, but they did it because they, it was their lives if they didn't. The soldiers were seeing and hearing ghosts from the killed enemies. These were symptoms of PTSD even back then. The Assyrian leadership was proud of the mass executions. They loved to impale their victims on large stakes. And I, I actually took some of it out because I didn't want to even tell you. In the sights of illustrated terror and fear into the rest of the population, for the Assyrian kings, it was a showcase of their power. The Assyrian cruelty and the Assyrian for the Assyrian exile is the period of history of ancient Israel and Judah during which several thousand Israelites from the kingdom of Israel were forcibly relocated by Nero Assyrian Empire. This is one of the many instances 
of resettlement policy of the Nero-Assyrian Empire. Although they did not overtake the kingdom of Judah, and that's only because of God, Jerusalem was besieged but not taken. The tribes were resettled by Assyrian later and became known as the ten lost tribes of Israel. This had all happened in Jonah's day. Understand, he saw it happening. He could have loved ones, family members that were taken in captivity, that were stuck on stakes for torture. It, and here, this is where God's asking him to go. I can't even put it into words just how brutal these people were. Does it mean that they were bad people? Well, not as much as it meant they had some really bad leadership. All things were taking place during and around Jonah's ministry. Well, who else was there? Would there be around Nineveh for Jonah? Well, potentially thousands of Israelites who were slaves, forcibly relocated. God's reaching out not only to Ninevites, but his own people, as well as reaching out to those who only had an idea of who he was. When they hear of the Hebrew God of Israel, they know there is something very different about this God because they have heard the stories. Believe me, they had heard the stories of crossing the Red Sea. They have heard the stories of the 10 plagues in Egypt. They had heard the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah. They had heard these stories, refused to believe, but they still heard the stories of this Hebrew God. This Hebrew God was not one to mess with. Now consider, just for a minute, how Jonah must have felt. Hatred for the Assyrians' cruelty and the fear that he could be the next victim himself. Think about it. God has said, listen, I want you, we're going to read it here in just a second, I want you to get up and go to Nineveh. And I want you to preach these words to them. And I can just... I'm with Jonah here. I'd say, no, sir, not me, God. You got the wrong guy. Uh Uh-uh, no, 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 no. I know what they do. I know what they've done. And I know what they're doing to our people, to your people, God. And Jonah ran. So let's talk about the story. Let's look at Jonah 1, 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittiti, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them from the presence of the Lord. I think this is very interesting. I feel Jonah, I can feel, I can see why. I never studied the the history like this before. I never looked at the intent of why Jonah would do what he did. I just bought it because it's what the Bible says. But now I see his reasoning. This was far as he could go in the known world, the trip to Spain. Jonah 1.3 also offers insight on the human condition when called to accountability. It's our instinct to hide and to flee. Yet when we run away from God, we run from our responsibility to others. 
See, you got to understand, your salvation isn't just about you. It's about the people in your world. And there are people in your world that I will never meet. Damon has friends over in Montana. I'll never get to meet him. He's got relatives all over the place. So do you. I'll never get to meet him. Jim's got a huge family over there. And what state is that? Minnesota? No, what is that? Michigan, Iowa, Ohio. I'll never get to meet him. These are people in your world. And you run from God, guess what? They pay. They pay. Because they're people in your world. And it's our instinct to run and hide. We run from our responsibility. And unfortunately, it could be somebody else's salvation that lays in the balance. Verse 4. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea that the ship was about to be broken up. Verse 5, then the mariners were afraid and every man cried out to his God. Well, we know that they're the secular world. They weren't calling out to the Hebrew God. They were calling out to whatever God they knew. Probably Dagon, because Dagon, that was a big storm. <laughs> but, you know, they, they were calling out to their gods. They had no idea. They threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea. Do you realize how big of a deal that is? This was everything that was going to feed them, probably their families over the next year. And they threw it into the sea, trying to lighten the load. But Jonah, hmm, he had gotten down into the lowest parts of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. Isn't that interesting? Who does that sound like? Yeah. You remember the story of Jesus? Let's look at that real quick. Matthew 8, 23 through 25. Matthew 8 says, verse 23, Now when they got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he, Jesus, was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, give us, save us, we're perishing here. Jesus, don't you see we're about to die? We believe Jesus was sleeping because he was the peace of God. He knew they weren't going to die. They just had to deal with it. Do you think it was possible that Jonah had this kind of peace? I think probably unlikely. There's a writer that I got out of Yankowitz's book. Abba Daniel is his name, probably another Jewish also write that Jonah fled not from fled not from God but from the prophecy a quite different question arises when we ponder Joe's, uh, Jonah's behavior from a physical physiological viewpoint does he have what we now call bipolar disorder Aber Daniel interprets he lay down and fell asleep to mean that Jonah thought he would um, die on the ship is, is where he was at and he didn't care, refer, re, referring to the statement that sleep is the, one of the sixth sense of death. 
To me, it seems possible that Jonah was actually depressed. Going to sleep at times of enormous stress can be a dysfunctional coping mechanism. Can I get an amen? amen. There are many people, myself included, when I get really stressed out, I want to go to sleep. I just want to lay down and let the world go away. And I think that's probably where Jonah was at. I think it's possible that Jonah is actually depressed, going to sleep at, during this time of this incredible storm. And this can be a dysfunctional coping mechanism. One sleeps to escape reality. When the captain says to Jonah, what is this to you, oh sleepy one? He's asking a rhetorical question. More than anything else, he expresses his surprise over Jonah's unusual reaction. How can someone possibly sleep at such a perilous time as this? After all the lives aboard the ship are about to go down, let's look at verse six. So the captain came to him and said, what do you mean, sleeper? Arise and call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. Verse seven and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast the lots <laughs> and it fell on Jonah. Of course it did. Of course it did. This was just superstitious that they were playing, casting lots. Let's see, figure out who's on the ship that caused this problem to come upon us. And God says, oh, I love it. Let it fall on Jonah. Then they said to him, please tell us for whose cause is this trouble come upon us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? So he said to them, the one thing they didn't want to hear, I'm a Hebrew. <laughs> the minute he said that, they've heard of this Hebrew God. They know who he is. I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and made the dry land. Do you believe Jonah? He's saying in his own words here that he fears God. Well, he does. Not enough to stop him from running from God, but he does. He knows this God is real, and he knows this storm is because of him. Verse 10, then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had just told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing even more temptuous. It was getting worse. And he said to them, pick me up, throw me into the sea and the sea will become calm. For I know this great tempest is because of me. He knew exactly what was going on. And Jonah was ready to give his life. Throw me over. Kill me. Take it now. Can you feel him? He didn't care if he lived or died. He was ready to commit the, the ultimate sin, to just take a life, take his own life. Throw me over. Nevertheless, verse 13, nevertheless, a man rode hard to return to the land. Hey, you got to hand it to these guys. 
They're now rowing with everything they have, trying to get back to the land because they're concerned about this Hebrew God. And this guy is a Hebrew prophet of the Hebrew God. We're certainly not going to kill him or be responsible for his death. So they're rowing with everything they had, trying to get this boat back to shore. But it was all, all avail. Could not do it. They rode, but they could not. The sea continued to grow more temptuous against them. Verse 14. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, Please do not let us perish for this man's life. And do not charge us with innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased, as it pleased you. They knew who they were praying to now. So they picked Jonah up, and they threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. These guys, <laughs> they became, you know, Hebrew converters. They were ready to acknowledge who God really is. So they offered sacrifices to the Lord and they were taking vows. Verse 17, then the Lord prepared a great fish and swallowed Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Many of us feel that we do not do enough. We may feel exhausted and tired of carrying the heavy weight of this universal responsibility. That's not just us. We see that even the prophet can feel similarity and respond, and he tries to run away from his responsibility. Jonah is us. We are Jonah. It is not easy to be a prophet. The prophet is neither cool nor, you know, he's not popular. A prophet is not the life of the party. Neither is a pastor. It's a real bummer. You know, he's just not. He's not the life of the party. The prophet, the, the prophet is an anxious personality juggling the demands of God with the needs of human beings, constantly risking alienation or even death, the prophet is isolated and lonely. But we are not allowed to turn and run. There is no life without task. There is no person without talent. There is no place without a fragment of God's light awaiting to be discovered and redeemed, no situation without possibility, no sanctification, no moment without its call. It may take a lifetime to learn how to find these things, but once we learn and realize to retrospect, that it all ever took was the ability to listen. That's all it ever took. When God calls, he does, he does call, but we need to listen. Instead, he sometimes he whispers our name. The greatest reply, the reply of Abraham is simply, in Hebrew, was Hinanibi, which meant, here I am. Already to heed the call, you call. 
to mend the fragment, your all too broken world. Let's look at Jonah chapter two. Siri, I wasn't talking to you. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord. He's in the belly of the fish. His God, he prays to his God from the belly of this fish. Verse two, and he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. And he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried and you heard my voice. How do you know that he heard God's voice? He, I mean, it's amazing. He heard. He knows that God had heard him. Verse three, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and into the floods around me. All your bellows and all your waves passed over me. Verse four, then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. I have no idea how he figured out inside the belly of the fish, but he was believing in his heart that he's looking towards God's holy temple. Verse five, the water surrounded me, even to my soul. The deepest closed around me. The weeds were wrapped around my head. Verse six, I went down to the mornings of the mountains and the earth and its bars closed in behind me forever. Yet you have brought me up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. It's an interesting prayer. Verse seven, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pray what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah up on dry land. I wonder, I wonder if that could have been like a projectile. <laughs> you know, for like 600 miles. I don't know. Is Jonah turning to prayer to acknowledge his wrongdoing? Did you hear that in his prayer? I didn't. And seek forgiveness? Or is he merely a scared man trying to save his own life, which he endangered himself? In a commentary by Erica Brown, she writes, Jonah's prayer had little to do with repentance. Jonah never once expressed a contrition. If he were sorry, these words did not appear in the book. If he felt wronged, if he felt, if he felt he wronged God or the people of Nineveh, he made no such admission rather than the prayer of remorse for forgiveness. Jonah's prayer is one of thanksgiving, which I think we need to remember. As it says, Jonah in 2.10, it said, but I with a loud thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. What did he have to sacrifice in the belly of a fish? Only his thoughts, only his prayers, only his thanksgiving. To sacrifice to you, he prays with gratitude for being saved from the stormy ocean inside the safety of this big fish. Perhaps the greatest virtue of prayer is truth. A prayer cannot be uttered before the creator of the world by someone who 
hides or speaks lies. Those engaged in prayer must believe wholeheartedly in the words they are uttering. Can I get an amen? amen? We need to believe when we pray what we're praying. Because Jonah did. He believed. He wasn't asking God to forgive him because he has a problem. And as we get into three and four, you're going to see Jonah is a, a stubborn man. And I don't know. Honestly, we'll find out when we get to heaven. In fact, there was this one article that I, that I was reading and there was this lady who was confronted by an atheist professor and and, you know, he came to her and says, you really Christians, you really believe that story of Jonah? And she goes, well, yes, I do. She goes, in fact, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him what it was all about. Why, you know, why he ran so heartily. And he goes, oh, you think you're going to find Jonah in heaven? And she goes, well, I don't know. He may be in hell. You can ask him when you get there. <laughs> I thought it was beautiful. What a great response. We don't know. Jonah has a heavy load because he knows these people and God is trying to show his grace and his mercy towards his creation. There may be people in your own life that have hurt you so devastatingly that you literally cannot forgive them. And God's trying to change our heart in that. We need to. Actually, we have to. I'm not telling you, you got to go find those people that have broken your heart and hurt you and stomped on you and ripped your heart out of your chest, that you go and have to have lunch with them. Now, I'm not saying that at all. But inside yourself, within you, you have to find that place where you go, hey, it's okay. God's allowed me to be able to forgive you for those things. I'm not going to be your best friend and we're not going to hang out. Don't care. Not ever going to put myself in that place for you to get close enough to hurt me again. That's okay. But we have to forgive with our entire heart. And that's what the book of Jonah is going to be showing us. And I'm so glad that we are studying it.